Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Oscar Weber to tell us all about his book titled Negotiating Relief and Freedom, Responses to Disaster in the British Caribbean, 1812 to 1907, published by Manchester University Press. This is a really interesting, intriguing book that makes, I think, some important points kind of for the particular place in time so the British Caribbean during this time period, but also helps us understand some longer-term trends as well, helps us understand British Empire more broadly, helps us understand some of the disaster responses we see today in the Caribbean, unfortunately. So this book is doing a lot of really interesting things to help us unpack words like disaster, like relief, like what does it mean to be free, and what role did the British Empire play in all of this? So Oscar, thank you so much for being with us to tell us all about your book. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for your for your kind words and the introduction there. Before we get into your book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Yeah, so obviously, as you said, I'm Oscar, um, and I did my PhD in history at the University of Leeds, um, and from there I lectured at LSE and held a, a research fellowship at the uh, Institute for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at the University of London. So this focus of the Caribbean has really been, uh, you know, in my work and, and in my teaching um, for a long time. I actually, in many ways, um, the seeds for this book almost go all the way back to my undergraduate degree. Um, I was studying um, uh, third year, was thinking about dissertation topic, and I was looking at the module catalogue. It must have been in the second year of my, uh, at the end of my second year, I was looking at the module catalogue, and I saw this this um, uh, module, uh, which I think, I'm paraphrasing here, but was essentially uh, disasters in history. And obviously that jumped off the page um, straight away, and I was really interested and in thinking, well, I'd never... I had that kind of conception of well, disasters are kind of the you know the purview of uh, geographers, etc. Um, so how how would that work? Disasters in history. I I picked this module that sounded really interesting, and it it kind of linked into uh, an interest I'd already been building in environmental history. I'd been really started to get interested in the kind of reciprocal relationship between humans and their environment. So actually, you know, the the disaster part of this leapt off the page, but also it really fit with where I was going with my kind of studies already. And um, this module was run uh, by a scholar, Greg Bankoff, um, and he's really influential uh, to me um, in bringing, I suppose, this idea of critical disaster studies and, and exploring the role in which the historian um, can play in the study of disaster. Um, and so, you know, I got into this this topic and then it came to uh, dissertation time and I was looking for, you know, what, what disaster could I study? And I did lots of, you know, lots of looking and reading and researching um, and came across um, the, the disaster, one of the disasters mentioned in this book, the 1907 earthquake uh, in, in King, well, largely it's in Jamaica, but it largely hits Kingston. That's where the, the central part of the damage was. 
Um, and this was a fascinating event, which we, we might talk uh, more about in, in, in the course of this conversation. But it was a really fascinating event and, and there wasn't really anything written about it. Um, and so, you know, that was a clear thing to get started on. There wasn't much written about it, but also it was a disaster that took place within the British Empire. So on a practical point, lots and lots of the records that I would need to go and study this event uh, were located uh, in London at the National Archives. So I just dived in from there really and got really, really interested in it. And, and the further I went with the topic through my studies and postgraduate into my PhD, you know, it became clear that there was there was a lot to to write about and really contribute um, in this in this respect to, about this topic. So yeah, it's, it started with this first study of this earthquake uh, in 1907 in Jamaica and, and kind of blossomed from there. Well, so that actually I find really interesting because your the title of the book um, obviously has a lot of things in it and we'll get into the various components. But of course, as a historian, I sort of immediately go for the date range, right? And you end the focus in 1907. So I suppose if that's kind of where you started, in a lot of ways, you then went backwards. So can you tell us about why you chose to focus on 1812 to 1907, given what you've just told us about sort of the backstory or the origin story of the book? Yeah, certainly. So it kind of, the, the, as the project developed, and I pursued this a bit when I was doing uh, postgraduate studies before I did my PhD, um, I, I'd looked at this earthquake uh, 1907 in Jamaica and, and found that really, really interesting. Um, and, I, and I wanted to kind of, you know, explore it further. There was there was so many kind of interesting themes that were emerging out of that study. And I kind of looked at historical records and, um, you know, in the decade previous um, to the uh, 1907 earthquake, there'd been this a major hurricane in Barbados in 1898 and then um, the eruption of uh, La Soufrière in um, St. Vincent in 1902, somewhat overshadowed by the Martinique uh, eruption and that took place parallel basically in the same week to that. But there was these other two events and it became clear again that there was, as I studied them, there was, there was themes um, and just fascinating kind of trends and threads that were connecting them to 1907, uh, particularly in, in terms of the British response, even though, you know, we were talking about three separate places, Barbados, St. Vincent and Jamaica. And so once I'd kind of studied those in depth and saw the way that they linked to 1907 and helped me explain some of the, the response and way in which people were treated and the way in which the kind of relief effort or the response um took place after that it was kind of like oh the, what what you know as i got to the point of you know being able to do a phd it was like oh there's there's certainly a whole kind of interesting you know study to go back and look at this and obviously you know we'll probably touch upon this multiple times today you know the the big pivotal change um in the caribbean um the you know the first the abolition of the slave trade in the seven and then later the ending of slavery and it's following by apprenticeship um so it just seemed that oh the caribbean had always experienced um these disasters hurricanes in particular on an annual basis there was so much to go back and explore so yeah it was quite and now i think about it you bring that up it's kind of strange almost working backwards from from where the book would eventually end um but it just kind of fell naturally as i sought to kind of explain more and more the the kind of the factors that were shaping the colonial response the only way was to go back and see where they had come from so to speak yeah no that makes quite a lot of sense and i think we're going to do 
a bit of that excavating where things come from. Though obviously, in a bit of a highlights fashion, the detail is in the book, but we should, you know, hopefully get to some of those big concepts in our discussion. So now that we have an idea of kind of where this project came from, the time period that it covers, I think it's probably worth starting with how natural disasters at the time were understood because it's because as you said these are annual events right hurricanes still happen it's i think too easy to sort of assume that the way we think of them is the way that they were thought of in the 18th century but not so much so how were disasters understood by people in charge in the 18th century yeah so it's a it's a kind of it's a complex question i guess um and it's one I try to address quite a bit in the, the first chapter of the book. And what I'm really doing in that first chapter, um, and this you know relates to your question, is exploring the way in which the 18th century, um, in many respects, marked a shift. And with any shift in thinking, in this case, from a, uh, a totally kind of providential or religious understanding that disasters were the product of God to... Um, a more, we can say, loosely scientific understanding. Um, you know that 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 shift doesn't have a neat uh, start and end point. Um, and so, you know, I look at in the book in that first chapter some big pivotal uh, events uh, in that respect that shaped uh, and prompted people to think differently. The most famous uh, is obviously the one that I mentioned in there is in the first chapter is the, the Lisbon earthquake. Um, which took place in 1755 and in Lisbon. And, you know, in the in the 17th century still, as I mentioned in the book, there's an earthquake in, in, in 1692 uh, in, in Jamaica. Um, that's, it, it's, it's unbelievably devastating. It, it sinks effectively. The first capital of um, Jamaica, Port Royal, is built on this sandbar um, out into the sea. And this earthquake in 1692 basically sinks the city it causes liquefaction so the seismic energy causes the sand to basically stop acting as a solid um, and the town itself basically gets sucked into this giant sinkhole which is then infilled with the sea and that you know that event is just so just shocking to say the least uh, for the people who survive and witness it you know that event is really understood as a product of god's wrath um, for this notorious kind of den of iniquity of piracy and all the rest of it, everything that was associated with port royal kind of cut forward to this this earthquake in, in 1755 uh, in lisbon and that caused i suppose to put it lightly a lot of head scratching in europe because you you had this city that was absolutely devastated by this earthquake and it wasn't on the kind of colonial periphery so it, it wasn't you know, there was, I'm sure there was lots of people who were regarded as less than savory characters in Lisbon, but nothing like um, Port Royal, this, this, this town which had this extremely lurid reputation. And lots of people, I think as well, because the earthquake took place at a time when people were literally at the time of day when people were heading to mass, they couldn't, a lot of people really struggled to wrap their heads around how this had happened to uh, a Christian capital a time when people were actually going to church um and so this causes lots of consternation a lot of provokes a lot of thought in in that period of the european enlightenment where people start to think differently um about these events 
And that's not to say that they entirely abandoned in the 18th century a religious understanding of these events. You know, people talk about a kind of deist perspective, which is to say that these events are still seen as a product of a divine design, but the ways in which the disasters take place, they operate, could be something that could be understood um, and people work to that end. And I think the other reason why the Lisbon earthquake is so interesting in, in 1755 is because as the you know the, the people of the town who survived tried to pick up the pieces, the government actually steps in and seeks to rebuild Lisbon in as far as possible a kind of a scientifically grounded and more seismic proof way. Um, they, it's the what becomes known as the Pombal style uh, in um, in Lisbon. So you know that's one event that I touch on um, in in the in the book tries to highlight the way in which there's this shift happening provoked by big events um like like the lisbon earthquake but again it's you know as a historian it's hard to get a sense of who 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 did believe then that these were events that could be understood that were potentially had a as a scientific origin that could be understood and who and who thought they were religious well lots of people who are publishing you know that we can find in the historic records start to uh, obviously engage in this new study um, and move away from a providential understanding of disaster. But as we'll see, you know, people on the colonial periphery, not so much. So it, it's uneven. Um, but like I say, kind of coming back, you know, to, to really get to answer the question, really, the 18th century is this this transitory moment, um, like I say, provoked by big events like the Lisbon earthquake. But, you know, people are starting to think differently. Mm. The timing of the mass, I think, is a really interesting sort of key part of that. So thank you for explaining how these things came together. Before we move on, though, I do want to kind of poke at something you mentioned a little bit, the idea that the providential conception, the deist idea, uh, lasts longer in fringes like the British Caribbean than in other places. Why, why do you think that is? So, it, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um I mean, I think I think because I think there's there's a there's a physical element of distance, right? When people are thinking differently, say in the aftermath of the Lisbon earthquake, that emerges in you know a big exchange of letters and scientific discussions that are happening over Europe as people get this news uh, and react to it and process it and think about it. Um, when things are happening in the Caribbean, we know we're really at maybe a month or two. Uh, or possibly even longer distance in terms of the, the time it takes to travel there for news to be received. So there's that element, there's the kind of the practical element of the knowledge exchange and these discussions are slowed down. But the people, the sorts of people who are having those discussions in, in Europe, but also not the sorts of people, uh, you know, out in the periphery, like I say, you know, uh, Jamaica, Port Royal, the the previous capital, had you know had a very unsavoury uh, relationship. So this is not where the scientific minds of Europe are situating themselves. Um, so yeah, there's that element, and I think also as we see, um, you know, in the 18th century and into the 19th century, colonial officials there's this kind of interesting um, kind of two sides to how they look at these disasters in terms of you know are they understanding them scientifically or providentially. What I found a lot when I was studying records from this period is, and it took me a while to kind of think about this, was that the colonial officers 
when they're talking to themselves or they're talking to London, this is particularly in, in, in the period that I cover in the, in the 19th century, they're not talking about these disasters in a providential way. They're talking about them as events to be dealt with, to, to cope with and to build back from. They don't seem to be talking about it, um, like I say, in, a, in using religious language when they're talking amongst themselves. But when, as, as you'll see, you know, if you, if you read the book, um, there's lots of times where colonial governors will, you know, in the immediate aftermath of a hurricane or whatever, will issue an official proclamation to, um, to the people in the colony. And those proclamations are really tinged with religious language. And they are really, particularly in the early 19th century, the first third of the 19th century, framing um, the disasters as providential events. And I was, I was thinking for a while, why are they, why are they not talking about them in a providential manner between themselves? But when they go into these public-facing proclamations, and the more and more I looked at the sort of language in there, was the the conclusion I came to really was that religion played this um, kind of role as a kind of uh, an an arm of colonial control, effectively. What the language in these proclamations is saying is saying, well, this disaster has happened. It, you know, it's it's from you know the there's these amazing phrases like the dire disposer of events. You know, is how uh, divine power is is talked about in some of these uh, proclamations, and it's basically using that providential frame to make a call for calm and saying, look, the dire disposer of events has brought this hurricane to the island. Be glad that you are alive now, and also basically behave yourself so that no more worse tragedies are, are, are visited upon us, upon the island. So I think there's that. that's what's happening in the public-facing uh, proclamations is kind of saying, look, this is a big outside force that's caused this disaster. And now, particularly when we're thinking about the, the central division in um, uh, Caribbean life in this period between plantation owners and overseers and 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 you know white sources of power versus african caribbean people you know enslaved and then later apprenticed and later free that division these proclamations are kind of like a call for calm and like a reminder of this higher power basically and so that is one of the reasons i think this at least this providential framing of disaster persists um in the caribbean if that makes sense yeah no it absolutely does and i have to say reading snippets of the proclamations in the book some of them are incredibly traumatic Mm. um which is really interesting to think about kind of in the immediate aftermath of death and destruction as you said this idea sort of behave yourself it could get worse almost in some senses Mm. and and just just to add on to that it's just kind of tweaked in my mind you know there'll be lots of times where it will say you know as a reminder to all people of the island you know think about the duties that you owe each other as christians Mm. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like religious also, you know, religion becomes, you know, because one of the main themes we see in the book is that these disasters provoke big fear in the white minority control uh, of, of controllers of these colonies that they're going to face um, some form of kind of threat to that control in the, in the chaos um, that follows these disasters. And so there's always these kind of reminders that, oh, actually, ignore the very obvious divisions of power in this colony. Remember your duties as Christians to one another. Calm, you know, stressing that element. 
And so then it becomes a question, you know, with Lisbon, it's about, well, actually, how do we understand the natural world? Whereas what we're seeing here is more religion being used as a tool to maintain power hierarchies. Mm, yes, definitely. And that really, you know, gets to one of the central themes of the book is how those power hierarchies become so much more exposed um, in in these moments of of chaos or vulnerability for the for the for the white minority. So I'd love to ask about that because to me, one of the ways that this exposure um, was particularly highlighted was in reading about kind of what happened immediately after the disaster, what sort of help was asked for. Um, mm. Because today, again, we're used to this. We're used to, oh, please send water or medicine or food or whatever. And you don't really hear calls anymore about please remember your Christian duty. You know, that's not what the aid requests sound like. But in the example you've just given us, I mean, none of those examples talk about please donate food to your neighbors, right? It's mm -hmm. a very different type of conception of aid. So what kind of aid was requested? Who was asking for it? Who was meant to receive it? What usually happened to these requests? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess to, to that first point then, who who was asking for aid? Well, in a way, obviously, we know that the, the reality would have been that everybody would have been asking for aid in, in some form. You know, that's what makes these events so interesting is that uh, white or black, rich or enslaved, everybody is, is affected by these events. But ultimately, the people who can make the external, the requests for external aid are the people who are literate, have access to, you know, channels of government, uh, communications with with Britain and neighbouring colonies. So ultimately, it's the the planter-dominated assemblies, in particularly in the first uh, kind of third half of the 19th century, and also um, the colonial officers and governors on the ground. Those are the people who are making um, those external uh, requests for aid. And what are they asking for? Well, their first recourse, pretty much always, is for any form of preserved food that can be sent. So that's usually things that are salted or potted, so salted fish, um, salted beef, uh, things that are potted, so sealed in some way, usually with lard. Preserved food that can be sent as soon as possible and will last. And this preoccupation with food is really you know, it's a, it's a result of, of two things that are explored in the book is that obviously, you know, food is the thing that will drive people to um, take action, right? Hungry people are people who take action, that people who are, you know, disregard set rules and laws and these sorts of things. So there's always an, an urgency in the letters that you read from planters and uh, colonial officials that food, the absence of food will provoke uh, uh, a riot, a contestation of their authority, whatever. So that is one of the things they're always asking for that straight away. And the other thing is, you know, and, and again, this is, you know, talked about in the book, and we might touch on this also later, is that these islands were, in effect, really heavily uh, import dependent already. If we think about the British Caribbean, you know, one of the, the central industries, really the most central industry of the British Caribbean was sugar plantations. Obviously, there are other crops like coffee, for instance, but ultimately, sugar is the, the biggest um, uh, crop because in many ways, it's the most profitable. And what the planters did was cover 
basically all usable arable land with plantations that they could. And so in these moments when these disasters happened, they don't have much food stored. And that's a bit of a mindset thing we might also talk about later. But they don't have much food stored up. Um, so it seems often that they take what food they have stored up for themselves and then make these desperate calls uh, for uh, external sources of food to come in. And in addition to um, food, the other things they all often uh, kind of desperately requesting, particularly we see after volcanic eruptions, is clothes also, um, particularly after volcanic eruptions, because those events more so than hurricanes, which might uh, soak your clothes after the rain, um, volcanic eruptions are burning people's clothes basically away. And so those were in huge need as well. And so, yeah, we also see big requests uh, for clothes. And then later down the line, you know, in the months that follow, as they've moved away from the very kind of desperate need for food in particular, then we start to see requests for timber, uh, for rebuilding, uh, and shingles and slates and this sort of thing for, for roofing. Um, and then I guess we might also talk about um, financial aid, again, made, made requests particularly by planters and colonial officials. And this is something that's explored a lot in the book, a very long protracted process of negotiation one of the kind of many sites of negotiation that are talked about in the book between um, really in a, a kind of a four-way complex negotiation where we have usually planters saying, I would like some money from the British government to rebuild uh, these sugar plantations. We need so, we need that money to employ or to put uh, in the early period of the 19th century enslaved African Caribbean people back to work because we're terrified that they might try and contest our authority. Uh, colonial officials then mediating the claims made by planters and sending them on um, to the British government who uh, and the colonial office which you know as we may also talk about are often unwilling to meet and un you know don't trust the estimations of losses made by uh, the planters in the Caribbean so that kind of sums up the sort of aid that is coming in or being requested and then on your point about who actually gets that and and where it goes? Well, in all cases, it goes to um, the, uh, the the colonial officers and the planters. It goes to you know white the white minority elite, um, and they as a as a recurrent theme throughout the book, they they withhold it basically. They often withhold it, and they only begin to distribute it once they are confident that the African Caribbean population is not going to contest. Uh, their authority and that you know we usually see these situations where they say well if you clean the streets if you bury bodies to prevent for instance the spread of disease if you start rebuilding things when you do that and you submit to our authority again then we'll begin the distribution of limited amounts of you know preserved salted foods and and clothes uh, and potentially some building materials to rebuild your own um uh lodgings so that that's the kind of process and we do see hints um in various particularly of the um quakers that visited um the caribbean um in the 1830s after emancipation to look they were going there to observe what the conditions of life were like um after slavery and we see in some of their accounts hints they say oh i visited uh, for instance one that came to mind was um a recording of a visit to barbados after this, many years after this giant hurricane in 1831, 
and they found that lots of um, the building materials or the money have not really been distributed at all um, to the African Caribbean population. It's been hoarded instead by the planters. So, yeah, in, re- in respect to how that gets distributed, from from what I could glean in my research, um, poorly, as you perhaps might expect. Um, and there's yeah. there's very little oversight uh, by the by the British government about where that money goes once it is agreed upon. And of course, that's by design, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in a lot of senses, I mean, that th- that is clearly by design. So, I don't really have any questions about kind of why did they do it that way, right? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the answer is pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the stuff that they're asking for. Um, food that is preserved, clothing, building materials, none of those, I mean, you've already made the point, right? None of those go bad quickly. So if you're going to hoard it, um, why not kind of ask for five years worth and then you've got your hoard ready given that, you know, these sorts of disasters happen sort of on an annual basis? Why, when they know that they're probably going to do it this way, they they know what they're going to ask for, they know the stuff they're asking for lasts a while, even with all that, I was really surprised to read just how little sort of advanced planning there was, given how frequently the disasters are. I mean, surely they don't want to be asking for these things every year? Yeah, it's a question that was a real essential question in my in my research, um, you know, that really kind of, um, I suppose, intrigued me uh, uh, for a long time was why was there so little forward planning, particularly, you know, for hurricanes which occur on a basically annual basis you know the severity differs from year to year but you can pretty much guarantee that you know one of these colonies is going to be affected um, by a hurricane every year um and it was a, through a kind of a long a long process of thinking about this now as i mentioned in the book there are individuals particularly uh, somebody like a uh, famous jamaican planter simon taylor who do go to some effort um to store food as he puts it quote to prevent want even in case of storms right but he's singled out as somebody else had studied um his uh kind of stockpiling another scholar uh, nicholas crawford he really singles him out and saying that he's a real exception he's more careful than others he's a wealthy planter he's more careful than others um and i think one of the things i kind of argue in the book really is that <coughs> pardon me is that there's there's multiple factors at play here that kind of explain why they don't um, kind of forward plan to the same degree. I think there's a first aspect, which is we have to think about absenteeism. So the people who often own these plantations aren't in the Caribbean. They're absentee, as the name would suggest. And they're um, in back uh, in Britain exercising their power um, in Parliament and building, you know, big... Uh, stately homes and, and huge estates in Britain. So there's a kind of um, practical aspect of that they're not directly affected by like the, the kind of visceral nature of these events. So maybe they're not thinking about them in that same way, thinking, oh, we need to, to prepare for this because they're not actually there. Um, and I think the, the other thing is that for the people who were there, often a theme I explore a lot in the book is they didn't really see the Caribbean as a place that they were going to stay long term as his planters, you know, they didn't see it as a home. And I contrast this to um, French colonists. I got some of the really interesting accounts of how kind of 
French planters saw the French Caribbean and they were very much attached to that and saw that as their home, even if they were born there, uh, in contrast to these uh, British uh, colonists and in contrast to obviously their, you know, relatively close neighbours like um, in the 13 colonies later America. They don't see it as a place where they're going to develop the Caribbean in the long term. They go there to set up a plantation and set in chain um, uh, a process by which they're going to make lots of money. And most of them are really quite desperate to get back to Britain and get to that business of, of building big estates. And so I think in many ways, there's just a, a neglect. They, they will, they, you know, these people campaign to get some relief sent over there after disasters, but effectively their, their goal here is to make as much money as possible from um, these plantations. So they're willing to basically do it on the on the cheap. They will spend as much as they need to, but not really more than that. Um, and particularly as we go into the, the 19th century, you know, the plantation class is notorious for their indebtedness. Um, so I think really these, they they were chancing it often that maybe a bad hurricane wouldn't happen this year and therefore they didn't need to spend lots of money um, thinking about how their buildings were constructed and, and thinking about what they were stockpiling and this sort of thing. So I think really it came down to what I referred to in a way in the book as a, as a plantation mindset that's wholly profit-driven and they wanted, to, they, were, they wanted to cut corners where possible and going back to the you know, deeply racialized nature of the labor employed on plantations, obviously enslaved in the in the first third of the nineteenth century and later apprenticed and then and then free. They didn't view, you know, if they weren't willing to invest um beyond the necessities for making profit in their plantation, they also didn't view um African Caribbean people clearly in a way that when I'm going to invest for your welfare. You know, they fought every step along the way, um, many of the welfare measures that followed uh, the abolition of uh, the slave trade in the 1907, there's a a period in the uh, 1820s where Britain attempts some kind of welfare, um, kind of very limited, it must be said, welfare policies for um, enslaved people in the Caribbean, and they fought those every step of the way. So I don't think they were going to suddenly start thinking about stockpiling food for the benefit of uh, the African Caribbean population um, because they had fought their welfare every step and they fought impositions to take seriously some but however small degree their welfare every step of the way and I don't think they were going to change uh, despite the frequency of these disasters. Thank you for explaining that I also found it kind of just inexplicable like why aren't they doing this but actually reading the book listening to that explanation it does in fact, make rather a lot of sense. I'd love to kind of now pick up something you mentioned earlier that we've not gone into much, um, which is this idea that disasters um, create this massive fear for the white minority class, that um, their power hierarchy will be challenged. Um, Can you walk us through sort of what that looked like in some of these instances? You know, what, what were they scared of? What actually happened? What do they try and do about it? Yeah, so I think, in a way, the best place to start answering this question is thinking about what is life like um, for African Caribbean. How does how does the how does power work in the nineteenth century Caribbean when there's not a disaster? And um, that is to say, um, 
for most of the 19th century, particularly obviously during the period of, of slavery, life centers on the plantation. And the plantation, um, and I'm paraphrasing a scholar whose name I forget here, but the scholar... The plantation effectively functions as like a as an outdoor panopticon. Um, so it's an outdoor prison in which, because of the mass deforestation, you can have white overseers on horseback patrolling uh, the plantation, and they can have huge lines of sight over the whole plantation grounds. So the plantation is this concentrated discipline effectively open air prison where the white minority and they are really really in the minority um can exert very totalizing you know strong totalizing control over the african caribbean population and they are heavily policed you know one of the things i talk a lot about is their movement um in in everyday life most enslaved people aren't allowed to leave the plantations without express permission using a written pass from an overseer or plantation owner so their movement is really heavily controlled where they can and can't go is really really heavily controlled and they're constantly observed and so when you have a disaster uh if we think about you know you know going to most common a hurricane which it completely stops all these these rhythms which control and regulate life for African Caribbean people, and it, it and it it brings chaos that that this white minority was suddenly very terrified of. Well, all the sugarcane, you know, in the case of a hurricane, all the sugarcane has just been mowed down by these huge winds. There's flooding everywhere. Maybe there's landslides. Maybe the horses that the overseers usually ride around on uh, and use to keep people rounded up. Maybe they've been killed in the course of the hurricane. They're, all the rhythms are suddenly out of whack about, okay, this is when you have to turn up, you know, from your lodging, you're expected to be on the, the from your hut, you're expected to be on the plantation at this time and work until sundown. And then you have all these other duties, all these other duties which control and regulate every aspect of your life under constant observation. And then suddenly a hurricane might come along and the very plantation's plantation house itself is completely knocked down uh the overseers and maybe the plantation owner if they survive the hurricane which they may well not survive the hurricane are shorn of all of their kind of accoutrements of their control i mentioned you know be able to ride around on a horse but maybe the weapons that they own the guns that they own these sorts of things suddenly you know might on a practical level might be soaked with rainwater i can't fire a gun now i can't use that as a threat um but also you've lost the, the they've potentially lost the kind of visual markers of their authority like i say their plantation house might be destroyed they're not wearing you know fancy clothes or whatever it is that they usually kind of build this air of authority so these disasters come along and they they, they knock on away all these kind of rhythms of of work um and, and control and monitoring um that take place and like i mentioned earlier hunger which so often followed these disasters whether it was uh, a hurricane eruption or an earthquake are uh, the three kind of main disasters i study in this book you know hunger of course people are driven to survive so if there is no food to be found on the plantation after a storm they are, people are going to leave the plantation and they're going to go looking for it and 
often people migrated to um, small, because there often were small in the Caribbean, urban centers looking for food. And suddenly you start to, again, to have a situation that brings a lot of anxiety in white authority, which is you have large groups of African Caribbean people now getting together. Uh, maybe they're, they're demanding food, they're looking for food, uh, and suddenly you can really understand by, okay, the white minority, they might lose control of this situation. Um, so like I say, yeah, to really get to the heart of it, these disasters just, they, they brought chaos and they upended all of the, the rhythms and the methods through which control was exerted. And, you know, particularly those things like limiting people's movements off plantations was designed so that large groups of people couldn't get together. And of course, after a disaster, that's what people start to do. And we, we see colonial officers uh, and governors through the course of the book trying to find different ways to disperse people from urban centres and, and get them out and get them back on the plantations and this sort of thing. So that really is where lots of this fear comes from. That's very helpful for taking us through. Thank you so much. I want to kind of think about, though, how that changes or maybe perhaps more importantly, doesn't change. Um, because as you've mentioned a few times, during this time period, we have the abolition of the slave trade, which is, of course, separate from the abolition of slavery. Um, and then, of course, the abolition of the ill-fated apprenticeship program that tries to maintain slavery under a different name for a few years. How do these three different kind of official big deal changes, to what if to what extent do they actually change these dynamics and these disaster responses in the British Caribbean? Yeah, I suppose what I really one of the key themes of the book is to say that these these events that you've mentioned, they do change. Um, some aspects of how disasters are responded to, but there is a key theme of continuity, and this kind of comes to the part of the title about negotiating freedom. And we often see after these after these disasters in the period after slavery that the colonial officials and you know the planters that held positions in government and, and planters more broadly are trying to find ways that allow them to exert a similar level of control over. Um, the African Caribbean population that they once did uh, during the period of slavery. So, for instance, in you know in the period of slavery, it, one of the disasters talked about at length in the book is the 1831 hurricane in Barbados, this hugely devastating hurricane, and and we see that fear play out there as lots of people head to um, the capital of Barbados after the hurricane, looking for food, etc. And so a militia is deployed by um, the government. Um, which basically tours the plantations of the island and, and threatens violence to people who leave um, leave the that leave their plantations, and it's exactly this control attempt to recontrol people's movement and an attempt to submit uh, sorry to get people to submit to white authority in, in forms of work that persists through the nineteenth century beyond um, slavery. So we often see these kind of what I've termed in the book, I think, work uh, for relief schemes um, take place. Um, you know, the two key examples that really stand out to me are 1898 in Barbados after another hurricane there um, and after the 1907 earthquake in, in Kingston, in Jamaica. So we see 
officials, as I kind of mentioned before, withholding relief that's really needed in terms of particularly food and saying you can receive this aid, you can receive this food once you come and uh, clean streets. So, you know, clean streets, bury bodies and engage in often what was really dangerous labour. If we think about a partially damaged house from a hurricane or partially damaged from a from an earthquake, employing people to, to, to pull this down um, would be, you know, really, really dangerous. And so that is one of the key threads of continuity is that after these disasters in the post-slavery period, we see the colonial officials attempting to exert particularly control over movement, control over where people can go, and to kind of lock them in to forms of labour using um, the food, the clothing, the shelter that they might desperately need to do so and say, we're going to withhold that until you submit and you resume this kind of um, the normal way in which things are done in which the white minority um, are are in control, in charge of your movement, etc. So we see the reimposition of those um, or attempted reimposition uh, of those after uh, these these disaster events throughout the 19th century. Um, and in terms of kind of, I suppose you, you mentioned there, I think about a kind of reactions, what, what actually does happen? Well, one of the things I found really striking is that um, throughout the course of the book, in many ways, the white fear of a contestation of their authority doesn't really materialize. And in a way that kind of shocked me, given the severity of some of these events and given the hardships and the suffering that followed these events in terms of lack of food, lack of shelter. But I think what I increasingly found when I was able to get kind of first-hand accounts of what people were witnessing after these disasters is that actually far from, you know, being desirous of contesting um, white authority, much of the African Caribbean population, well, that hunger that we've talked about so much, but, you know, obviously limited their action. People were much more focused simply on just surviving the reality of life after the disaster, rather than putting themselves in, in the face of more danger, trying to contest white authority. But also there was there was a particular um kind of first-hand account from that hurricane in 1831 I previously mentioned where it talks somebody talks about walking around the streets of Bridgetown the capital of Barbados after the hurricane and I think the the writer uses this kind of like dramatic phrase that the hearts of all were charged with distress and I think often what you find is that people had lost so much after these events particularly of course the most vulnerable the African Caribbean population you know their their houses um, their their possessions and obviously lots of their their family members, their friends. They'd lost so much after these events that, like I say, people weren't interested. However angry they might be, they weren't interested to uh, in in contesting white authority in any really meaningful joined up way. And we do see incidences, particularly where. Um, it's, it's, it's felt that colonial officials are being particularly perniciously cruel with how they're withholding aid. We do see instances, um, particularly in, uh, in 1898 um, and um, in the Bahamas in 1866, where on various little out islands, colonial officials who are pretty much entirely on their own uh, are you know forced basically, much to their annoyance, to give away the food for free because there is a threat that people will just take it from them 
they're not willing to submit to working and they will just take it to them. But over, over, overwhelmingly, I think through the course of everything I studied, I think that was the sense that came across that these events were just so devastating, particularly for the most vulnerable, the African Caribbean population, that the the appetite, however angry um, they might have felt uh, about their kind of deteriorating treatment after these disasters, the appetite wasn't there. The, the, and people were simply really focused on just just trying to survive the hardships that followed these events because you know the hurricane might be 12 hours of of wind and rain but the 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 hunger and the rebuilding that followed for weeks afterwards and people clearly having experienced these events so regularly that was where their focus lay um very helpful to put all of that in context i think that's one of the things i found really useful about the book is kind of there's a lot of things happening in the same time period and we often sort of don't put them all in the same conversation if that makes sense um you know we talk about kind of environmental history we talk about political history of abolition but we don't always put them together so that's a really helpful piece of what i think the book is doing likewise i'd love for you if you could to tell us a little bit about obviously in some senses this is all happening quite a long time ago and there's many aspects in which these circumstances are not the same as they are now. On the other hand, legacies are real. Um, and these sort of quite nasty power hierarchies, the lack of planning, the sort of, oh, well, these things just happen and it's got nothing to do with us. Well, except for the fact that kind of how you run a plantation has a lot to do with environmental degradation. So what are some of the legacies of this 19th century pattern of disaster response. Yeah, so I think um, I think you kind of touched upon the, one of the key ones that I really tried to highlight in the book um, is the ecological damage that took place as a result of you know centuries of plantations is something that still really affects um, the Caribbean to this day. So you know, talked briefly, I mentioned briefly earlier about deforestation. So. <clears throat> You know, sugar plantation to grow a monoculture on mass like that needed huge clearance of existing um, uh, forest, jungle, etc. So there was mass deforestation. I think one of the things that always stuck with me that, that really shocked me from um, my research in this area. So in the 17th century, um, Barbados begins to be settled from 1625 onwards, and the early descriptions of the colonists arriving in Barbados is that basically there's the shore and then there's jungle right from the shoreline, basically almost impenetrable jungle covering the whole island of Barbados. Um, and then roughly speaking by the 1670s, the extent of the deforestation is such that the island is now reliant on imported timber to build any anything. That's how much they've chopped down and, and by, you know, the 18th century descriptions of Barbados basically describe the island as one large sugar plantation. That's how deforested the island has been. I mean, it's it's uh, it's really mind-blowing. And there was other, you know, other islands were severely deforested. Other islands, you know, such as Jamaica had mountainous regions that were never fit for growing sugar monoculture in. And so areas of forest obviously did survive. Um but you know this this deforestation and some of the the direct effects of that, particularly loss of soil cohesion in the face of of hurricane rains, etc., um, 
is something that that really affects the region to this day. Um, deforestation in particular, you know, reports that I've read about, um, this is slightly going outside of the British Caribbean, but particularly Haiti, um, the, the deforestation continually causes huge landslides there um, that are followed after earthquakes and hurricanes um, and, and really exacerbated the loss of life and, 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 and property. Um, and I think what's interesting is a bit out of, of my area of kind of scholarly expertise, but lots of people have argued that as the Caribbean has kind of become increasingly um, reliant on tourism as a key source of money, rightly or wrongly, why that's relevant now is that, you know, to quote another scholar whose name escapes you right now, you know, that the, the golf course has replaced the plantation. So where you had a huge area cut down for um, plantation, now those trees, have been, there hasn't been a, a replanting effort and the, and the golf course has taken its place. Another huge area of, in this case, grass monoculture. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's 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 embedding that legacy of, uh, of ecological um degradation that's followed on um, from colonialism. I think the other thing as well, um, to borrow uh, Walter Rodney's term as I do in the book about colonial underdevelopment is something that continues to affect um, the Caribbean. And, and this is, and this is, you know, this is something that's also clearly expressed in the calls for reparations for slavery, a recognition of how that enterprise of slavery and plantations underdeveloped these islands. It took money away from them, extracted resources from them for centuries, and it's left to them uh, under underdeveloped. Um, and obviously, that's one of the key reasons that they are, you know, um, making this claim for reparations now. And and as much as I mentioned earlier that these islands were really heavily import dependent and they needed to bring this food in the the islands in the caribbean remained um import dependent and i think that is in many ways a product of the ways that that history of how the colonialism has configured their economies that underdevelopment that extraction of, of resources away from there and it was really interesting to see um reading as i did at the time in the middle of the, the pandemic you know the un um was doing surveys and looking at where was vulnerable, particularly vulnerable to um, the COVID pandemic um, in that period. And one of the areas highlighted was the Caribbean. And one of the reasons why it was considered so uh, vulnerable was, again, because it was heavily import dependent. Um, and, it, and it really kind of struck me that that, that was coming up in relation, to a, in, in relation to an entirely different form of disaster than the sort of ones I've discussed in this book. But that, that um, kind of mode of economy um, was was increasing, exacerbating that that vulnerability in, in respect to, to COVID was so was so interesting and that, that was being identified. Of course, not discussed in those terms, but I think that was kind of that was clear to me having looked at that um, that century of history and so much more in relation to the Caribbean. And, yeah. Thank you for taking us through that. I think that's again one of the benefits of doing history of being a historian is that even if it's not mentioned in the news article, kind of having all that knowledge, you go, wait a second. Um, I see some some traces here. And so thankfully, you've let those of us listening to this um, into that a little bit as well. So thank you for sharing that expertise on that last question. Um, as we have come up kind of essentially to the present, really, that leaves me only with my final question, which is now that this book that you've been working on for such a long time is mm. available for people to read, what might you be working on next? Yeah, so I'm actually 
I'm working on a really, well, I think a really interesting project. Um, it's something that's kind of briefly mentioned in the book. It's something I started researching. So in the conclusion of um, the book, I mentioned this hurricane that took place uh, in what was known um, at the time as British Honduras, now Belize, uh, in 1931. Um, and, I, and I mentioned that as it, it acted really well as a coda for the um, for the book because it was an instance, in this case, of a, of a disaster provoking um, a different kind of response from um, from the, the wider population of, of the colony. Um, and, and I was really exploring, scholars of the Caribbean may know, um, and more broadly, that the 1930s was a huge period of labour unrest um, in the Caribbean. And uh, British Honduras is one of the first places where this labour unrest really broke out. Um, and I, I got really intrigued thinking about, well, how does this link to this hurricane that took place in 1931? And by 1933, this, this, this huge labor unrest has, has um, kind of exploded in the colony and spread around the rest of the Caribbean. And so I kind of mention a little bit in the conclusion of the book, a little bit of a, a link there. And that's what I'm really working on next is exploring the linkage there in more detail between this hurricane in 1931 and um this the the emergence of a of a labor movement of a of a decolonial movement um in british honduras and the other aspect of that that i think is really interesting that event in 1931 and i think this links into the the anger that followed and why that might feed into the labor unrest was that from my archival research it's become increasingly clear that the british governor john burden of british honduras knew about the hurricane in advance um, but decided, because the hurricane was supposed going to make landfall on the same day of um, some planned celebrations, celebrating himself um, and his achievements as governor, that those celebrations should go ahead. Um, and it seems from the archival record that he that he covered up basically the advanced warning knowledge that he was given about the imminent arrival of this hurricane in favour of making sure that these celebrations uh, for him and, and for British for the British Empire more widely took place, um, and that decision uh, resulted, you know, directly in the loss of over a thousand lives. So I'm really those are the kind of two aspects working on this 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 history of this event that I'm really wanting to explore uh, in depth. Mm, that does sound intriguing. Best of luck with that project um, as you continue to explore it. But of course, while you're working on that. Um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, Negotiating Relief and Freedom, Responses to Disaster in the British Caribbean, published by Manchester University Press. Oscar, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Great. Thank you so much for having me and such an interesting questions and conversation. Thank you.